0: Thank you, Brittany, for doing that this morning. Who here has their garden planted already? Who here is planning to plant a garden? Oh, there's okay. Okay, there's a few out there still. Right on. So uh, the parents are going to have fun trying to or helping their kids to plant those, and then the other challenge of keeping them alive. So that's the that's the other part of it. But it's always, it's always a lot of fun. Let's uh, bow once more and ask God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. And that if we hear it, if we heed it, you will water it by your Holy Spirit. And it will grow up to life within each one of us, Lord. And so I pray that this morning as we hear it again, that you by your Holy Spirit will bless this word to each one of our hearts, wherever we're coming from this morning, Lord. If we're in a position where we're not sure about this word or what it means for us personally, I pray that you would open that heart to hear what it means for them today. Lord, if we're in a position where we've done that a long time ago, I pray that this word would be translated to our heart in such a way that we would see again the beauty of your salvation for us, but also the outworking of it, that you want it to not just be for us, but to be shared with our family and with those around us who you also want to save. And so I pray that you would speak through this, your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1977, a relatively unknown band had released its first single. However, the single was a complete flop. No one liked it, no one listened to it, and the band continued on in complete obscurity feeling now immense pressure to make their breakthrough. The band had grand ambitions. They wanted to be the next big thing, so they kept working and they kept touring and they ended up doing a show in Paris, France. While there, Gordon Sumner, the lead singer, ended up walking through the red light district of the city, where for the very first time in his life, he saw prostitutes working the streets. In seeing them there, he figured that some of these women on the street must have boyfriends. And he began to imagine what it would be like for a man to fall in love with one of these street workers. He then began to imagine what the ensuing struggle must be like as that boyfriend would naturally want to pull her away from that profession and to have her all to himself. And that experience inspired him to write the song, which soon became their breakthrough, chart-topping single, That band was The Police. The leader, Gordon Sumner, is better known today simply as Sting. And the hit single was Roxanne. In 2008, the song Roxanne was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Its opening stanza goes, Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. Those days are over. You don't have to sell your body to the night. Now, some of you might be wondering right now, what business does a song about a prostitute have serving as the introduction to a sermon? Seems a little fishy, right? Well, the reality is that the Bible is full of stories that we think maybe don't belong there, because the Bible, in fact, never shies away from telling us the nitty-gritty facts about every story, no matter how scandalous or inappropriate they might seem to us. Because, in fact, the central character in today's text from Joshua chapter 2 is a prostitute named Rahab. Now, a question for you. Would you expect someone of her profession to be praised in Scripture? Would you? Like, no, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't expect someone of that profession to be lauded in Scripture. And yet, incredibly, she is For no matter what we may think, no one is beyond the incredible reach of God's deliverance and salvation. For not unlike Roxanne in the song, Rahab was also given an unexpected opportunity to leave behind the red light of prostitution in exchange for the red cord of faith. Now to set the stage, we left off last week with God's threefold call to Joshua to be strong and courageous, and to lead the people forward to claim their promised inheritance of the promised land of Canaan. So as we begin chapter 2 now, the Israelites are encamped on the east side of the Jordan River, waiting for the orders to cross and begin the military campaign into Canaan. It's deja vu all over again, so to speak. We remember 40 years earlier, the people had been encamped in the exact same location Moses was ready to lead the people into the land. The 12 spies were sent out. But of course, the 10 spies gave an evil report. The people rebelled. And the consequence was 40 years in the wilderness. Should I switch mics? I'm getting a lot of feedback. Okay, no problem. So in Joshua chapter 2, if you take your Bibles and turn back Uh, there with me. Let's take a look again at Joshua chapter 2 and we set the scene for our story this morning in verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, just to make sure you're all still paying attention, skill testing question, who's the only person in the Bible without parents? Joshua, son of Nun, right? Yes, making sure you're still with me. Okay. The second thing I want to just draw to your attention before we go any further is do you think Joshua is learning a lesson from the past? How many spies did Moses send out? Twelve, right? How many spies does Joshua send out? Two, uh, how did Moses send out the 12 spies? He sent them out with fanfare. Everyone knew that they were going out. How does Joshua send out the two spies? Look again at the verse. It says he sent them out secretly. So we see here that Joshua has learned from the past. He's savvy. He's realizing, I don't want deja vu all over again in this regard. He sends out two spies handpicked, obviously by him, For men that he knows, he can count on their opinion, that they're trustworthy men, they're faithful men. He sends them out secretly just in case when they come back. If it is an evil report, he's not going to let the people hear about it because he knows that God has given them this land and they're moving forward no matter what. So we see here some characteristics of Joshua learning from the past. But now as we hear that he likely handpicked these two men to go into the land, When we read in the very first verse that the two spies, the very first place they go and stay the night is a prostitute's house, it raises a few eyebrows, doesn't it? But as we consider that, let's also consider that if something untowards had taken place, the Bible would have told us that. I'm very sure of that. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. And in fact, there are some very valid and honorable reasons as to why those two spies went there. The first thing is that it would have been the ideal cover story. As two strangers traveling into the city, it would have been seen as an almost expected destination for two strange men to go there. Secondly, it would have been a good place to gather information. No doubt Rahab's house would have been a frequent stopping place for travelers from other parts of the land and therefore much news would have been exchanged there. It would have been uh, a gathering house of information. The third thing we see is it would have been an ideal location for a quick escape, as we later learn that Rahab's house was built into the city wall. And fourth, and I believe this is the most important reason of all, is that God directed them there. God directed the two spies to Rahab's house because he knew that despite her obviously sinful profession, Rahab's heart was open and receptive to him. And it was God's desire to save Rahab from the coming judgment. And not only that, but to then use Rahab in his incredible plan of salvation, not only for her and her household, not only for Israel, but in fact for the entire world. When we look at it more closely, we will see that Rahab's story is in fact our story. So let's take a closer look. The first thing we see about Rahab from verse 1 is right there, the author makes no bones about her profession, Rahab is a prostitute. Now, some people have tried to diminish that or lessen what she actually was. Maybe she was running the house. She was the madam, so to speak. Or uh, others said maybe it was mistranslated that it was actually just an inn that she was the proprietor of. But we know that's not true. Later on in the New Testament, it's verified again that she was, in fact, a prostitute in all that that word meant. And so we know from this that she is in a lost spiritual condition. She was engaged in a depraved lifestyle where she sold her body to men for money. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 18, God had already told Israel how he felt about this occupation. And he said to them, when you are bringing an offering to fulfill a vow, you must not bring to the house of the Lord your God any offering from the earnings of a prostitute, whether a man or a woman, for both are detestable to the Lord your God. And so here we see that God views prostitution as detestable. And that should come as no surprise, for it's taking God's design for sexuality to be enjoyed exclusively in the committed relationship of a husband and a wife, and twisting it into a commodity to be bought and sold for personal pleasure and profit. And we see this happening in so many ways around the world today, literally one-to-one, the same is happening today. We see it in other ways where sexuality is is used as a commodity. It's why internet pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry, one of the biggest in the internet. And so we see that this continues on today. It's known as the world's oldest occupation, but it's also happening all around us today, and God finds it detestable. And so While it's easy for us to look down on Rahab in her detestable occupation and her spiritually lost condition, but we need to recognize that she is in fact a picture of every single one of us before Christ. Now sure, you may not be a prostitute, but you're still a sinner, and so am I. As Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so you see, in God's eyes, all sin is detestable. He doesn't have a ranking degree of how he finds sin more or less detestable. It's all detestable in God's eyes. God is holy. All sin is beneath him. And the type or the quantity of it is irrelevant. You see, all of us were born with a sinful nature. We all commit sin And therefore, just like Rahab, we all begin life in a spiritually lost condition. Secondly, we see about Rahab that in addition to her spiritually lost condition, we see Rahab's spiritual condemnation. Rahab lived in Jericho, a wicked city that God had already slated for destruction. Now, likely many of the people in Jericho felt quite confident, quite secure behind the huge walls of their city. We find out later how thick and how strong those walls were. But we know that much earlier, God had already passed sentence on the people of Jericho. For their wickedness, he was bringing judgment and condemnation. It is the same way with many people today who feel confident and secure in continuing to live their life without a personal relationship with Christ. Many reason that they're good enough for God to let them into heaven without Christ. But I want you to listen carefully to what Jesus said in John chapter 3 verse 18, part of our call to worship this morning. Jesus said, whoever believes in him, referring to himself, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And that is Jesus Christ. Now friends, listen. Listen, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're over 80 or kids if you're under 10. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're in between those ages. If you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, if you have not asked him to forgive your sins and have not trusted him as your savior, then you are spiritually in the same position as the people of Jericho. You are already under condemnation if you do not believe in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is a serious matter. Now, you can decide, of course, to not believe me. You can decide, even if you want, to not believe what Jesus said in his word. And you can keep on living the way you are without Christ, living in false security, but just as certainly as Jericho's walls did come crashing down and the people were utterly destroyed, to die without Jesus is to head into an eternal destiny of destruction, a place the Lord Jesus called hell, completely separated from God forever. And Rahab lived under the condemnation of God's coming judgment along with all of the inhabitants of the city around her. And my friends, listen, we do too. We do too. We are just like the inhabitants of Jericho. Our town and our nation without Christ are living under the condemnation of God's coming judgment upon all sin. And just as surely as it did fall upon Jericho, that day is coming, and there will be a reckoning. And thirdly, after all of this bad news, we see her spiritually lost condition, we see her spiritual condemnation. The third thing we see is Rahab's spiritual conviction. So let's return to the narrative of the two spies. And we read in verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so right out of the gate, we see that these spies are not nearly as sneaky as they thought they were, obviously. Whatever disguises they were wearing, whatever they did to try to blend in, it didn't work because the king had his own men watching and they noticed these two men and they reported them almost immediately. And so being made the king sends his men to demand that Rahab hand them over and suddenly unexpectedly these two spies out on their dangerous mission on behalf of Joshua and the nation find themselves utterly at the mercy of a prostitute now at first glance we would expect this story would just go that Rahab immediately hands them over because why wouldn't she Common sense would dictate that she would side with her own king, she would preserve herself, and she would simply hand them over. But immediately we see she doesn't. Instead, we read in verses 4 to 7 how Rahab goes to great lengths to hide the spies on her rooftop and then she spins an elaborate cover story to send the king's men on a wild goose chase. But it begs the question, why? Why did she do this? I'm sure the two spies were wondering the exact same thing. Why didn't you hand us over? Why didn't you turn us in? Why would you, a people in a city slated for destruction, why would you take a personal risk to save us, your enemies? Well, in verses 9 to 11, she tells them. These are the key verses as it pertains to Rahab and her motivation verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now I want you to stop as we hear these words and remember one important thing. This is a pagan prostitute speaking. A pagan prostitute living in a city slated for destruction. Incredible, the words that she speaks. And here we see that Rahab is experiencing intense spiritual conviction. She's experiencing conviction of their coming judgment to the point where she says, Our hearts are melting in fear. Everything that she had heard about Israel's mighty, miracle-working God had convinced her, persuaded her, and not only her. Take note that she says it wasn't just her, but all the people who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So clearly Rahab is not alone in feeling this strong conviction of their coming judgment at the hands of Israel's God. But notice this, while everyone feels the same fear as Rahab, only Rahab responds with faith. You see, feeling conviction alone is not enough. Many people can hear the word of God and feel convicted. That's what God's word does. The Holy Spirit is the agent of bringing conviction through God's word. But feeling conviction alone is not enough. We must respond. There must be a response to God's word with personal faith. Let's look at Rahab's personal response. Her declaration of faith again at the end of verse 11 where she said, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now to hear these words coming from a pagan Canaanite prostitute living in a wicked city slated for destruction is absolutely remarkable, isn't it? But it begs the question, is it all just a, you know, a little bit too little and a little bit too late? Judgment has been pronounced. The day of mercy has passed. And it's coming. Isn't it all just too late for Rahab? Well, this leads us to the fourth thing we see in this story. And that is God's spiritual compassion. Let me remind you of an often overlooked fact in this story. It had been just over 40 years since Israel had escaped Egypt and subsequently been poised on the east banks of the Jordan River, ready to invade the land, including Jericho. And, of course, we know it was Israel's disobedience that had caused the 40-year delay. And yet the fact remains that Jericho was given a 40-year reprieve on their judgment. Forty years, an entire generation of time where they could repent and turn from their wicked ways. Forty years is a long time, isn't it? I'm not even 40 yet. To me, that's over my lifetime. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I wish, only 40 years. But still, it's a long time. A reprieve of 40 years. That's not insignificant, my friends. And I believe that in this reprieve, we see God's mercy. Granting them 40 more years to repent. 40 more years of opportunity, including for one person, a prostitute named Rahab. And you see, many people point to the conquest of Canaan. And yes, all of the bloodshed that it entails. And they point to that as evidence of God being a God only of judgment and wrath. And believe me, my friends, when we go through this story, we're going to see that there are commands from the Lord that make our skin crawl. Wipe them all out, man, women, and children. But they were coming under God's divine judgment, after a wide open window of opportunity for them to repent. And you see, in this story, we see an example of that. For the truth is that even on the cusp of Jericho receiving the judgment that they rightfully deserved, we see a God who still desired to show compassion to anyone who would repent and believe. Think back to Noah building the ark the most cataclysmic judgment of the earth that that has yet taken place. He wiped it all out, the entire planet, for its wickedness and its continual violence. But that ark was built, and the door was open up until the rains fell. The door was wide open. Noah preached repentance to the people for 120 years, but in the end, not one person got on that ark. But even there, again, we see God desires compassion over judgment. The opportunity is there, wide open. Just as it was on the ark, it is open for Rahab and the people of Jericho. God desired that they would repent and turn to him. And 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to repent. Friends, let me ask you, how many years has the Lord given you? How old are you? How many times in those years that he has given you have you felt the Lord's conviction? How many times has the Lord knocked on the door of your heart? How many times has he come calling? Let me ask you, how many times... has has he called you to humble yourself before him, to repent of your sin and place your faith solely in him? How many times? For you that have already opened the door to your heart, you have entered into that relationship with Christ, how many times did the Lord have to knock before you finally opened that door? Chances are for the vast majority of us here today, it was more than just once, wasn't it? It was more than just once, probably more than just twice. Some of us may have resisted the Lord hundreds of times, but did the Lord stop knocking? Did the Lord stop calling? No, the Lord desired for you to be saved. If he wanted to just say, I've done my part, he could have knocked one time, you didn't answer, and he could be completely just and fair to say, I gave you a chance and you didn't take it, right? He could be that way, but God isn't that way, my friends. He is so merciful, so compassionate, so desiring that just anyone would repent and come to him. And that's why he gives any and every opportunity for sinners to come to repentance. No matter how late it might be, even the thief on the cross, as he's drip by drip, bleeding to death next to Christ, even he, the Lord desired to save When he says to Jesus simply, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. God is interested in sinners, my friends. He desires compassion over judgment. And so, my friends, if the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart today and you haven't opened that door yet, don't wait to decide. Today is the day of salvation. Fifthly, we see Rahab's spiritual surrender. In verses 12 to 13, we read this. Now then, this is Rahab speaking, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Now, everything that Rahab had heard reinforced the fact that the God of the Israelites is the sort of God who does what he says he will do. He is a promise-keeping God. And so it was her hope that by her actions of faith and kindness shown towards the spies, that she and her family could come under God's protection and therefore escape the coming destruction of Jericho. You see, Rahab knew that the only way she could obtain this protection from the coming destruction was to risk everything. She had to surrender all of her old life and comforts for a new and unknown life ahead. And make no mistake about it, surrendering our old life is not an easy thing to do. Most in Jericho... Though they also felt the fear and conviction of coming judgment, most of them couldn't do it. But Rahab did. She staked her whole life and her family's future on God's mercy and surrendered everything into his hands. And this is why Rahab's faith was honored in the Hall of Faith, given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, which states this, By faith the prostitute Rahab... Because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Incredible. All the way in the New Testament, in the Hall of Faith, we see a prostitute's name listed. That by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. The key phrase here, of course, is by faith. By faith. But what is faith? What is it to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation? Well, a missionary in Africa experienced great difficulty in trying to translate the word believe into the local dialect. He continued to do his best, but he always had to leave that blank space when he came to that word in Scripture. They simply didn't have a word for it in their language. And so one day, a runner came panting into the camp, He had traveled a great distance at great speed with a very important message for the tribe. A a life-changing sort of message. And after blurting out his story and the urgency of his words, he felt completely exhausted. And he collapsed into a nearby hammock. He muttered a brief phrase that seemed to express both a great weariness at the arduous journey he had just been through but also a delight and a contentment at having found such a delightful place of relaxation in this hammock. And the missionary, never before having heard those words expressed, this phrase, he asked a bystander immediately, what did that man just say? And the response was, oh, he is saying, I'm at the end of myself. Therefore, I am resting all of my weight here. I am at the end of myself, therefore I am resting all of my weight here. And hearing that expression and those words, the missionary exclaimed, Praise God, that is the very expression I need for the word believe. And so he completed his translation. You see, friends, to believe in Jesus for salvation, faith, is to come to the end of ourselves, to give up our own efforts to save ourselves, to to give up our own efforts to somehow mitigate the circumstances of our lives, to, to fix things on our own effort and our own skill. We have to come to the end of ourselves and rest our weight entirely upon God's grace. To say, Lord, only you can do this. Only you can save me. I can't add a thing. I can't do a thing. I'm resting the full weight of my soul's salvation on you and you alone. And this is the kind of faith that Rahab demonstrated. She put it all on the line. She surrendered it all and said, Only this God can save me and my family. And this leads us to the sixth thing we see in our story today. We see Rahab's red light exchanged for the red cord. In verse 12, Rahab asked the spies for a sure sign that after helping them escape, which we read later she did by lowering them down the city wall, she asked for a sure sign that her and her family's lives would be saved in the coming judgment. And so the spies agreed. And then in verses 17 to 18, we read this. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear, will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And then in verse 21, her response, agreed, she replied, let it be as you have said. And so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now how interesting is it That on the night of the Passover, when the Israelites were saved from Egypt, they were instructed to wipe the scarlet blood of a lamb on the threshold of their doors and on their windows, and that by doing so, it would be a sign to the angel of the Lord, when he saw the scarlet blood on their doorposts, to pass over their homes, and thus save the firstborn from death. And now here we have Rahab required to hang a scarlet cord, a red cord, that would be assigned to the Israelites to pass over her home and spare the lives of all of the people within it. This isn't just a coincidence. This is, again, a picture of God's mercy passing over judgment because he sees the blood of the Lamb. The scarlet blood of the lamb, the scarlet red of the cord, all point ahead in time to the scarlet blood of Jesus that poured from his wounds upon the cross. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, "'For you know that it was not with perishable things "'such as silver or gold that you were redeemed "'from the empty way of life handed down to you "'from our ancestors.'" but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. My friends, Jesus shed his blood so that we could be saved and nothing less. He shed his blood so that our spiritual condemnation could be lifted and replaced by spiritual liberation and by life today and forever with God. And Rahab gave up the red light of her old life of sin, and she hung the red cord. And in that act, she placed her entire faith in God alone to save her and her family. And God did not fail her. And this leads us to our seventh observation from this story. We see Rahab's spiritual inheritance. We skip ahead in the story to Joshua chapter 6, verses 24 to 25, in the conclusion of the sacking of the city of Jericho. And there we read, Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. And verse 25, But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lived among the Israelites to this very day. Yes, Rahab risked it all, but look at her inheritance as a result. First, we see that her and her family are spared from death. Second, we see that they, in fact, join Israel and become a part of the covenant blessings of the Lord. And perhaps most astounding and incredible of all in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, There, in the genealogy of Jesus, we discover Rahab the prostitute, an ancestor of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Rahab, once a mistress of the night, now the direct ancestor of the Christ. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing, my friends, that God's grace is so far-reaching, so powerful, so purifying, that he is not ashamed to list Rahab the prostitute as one of the ancestors of his Messiah, the Christ. Isn't that amazing, my friends, that God could take someone like that, lift her up, cleanse her, purify her, and then honor her in the most incredible way possible. What that was, my friends, is a miracle of God's love and grace. And so, my friends, let me just remind you again, what God did for Rahab, he can and desires to do for you. What God did for Rahab, he can and desires to do for your family members. What God did for Rahab, he can and does desire to do for the people in the town of Clarny around us and in our nation, and yes, around the world Because remember, God desires compassion over judgment. This is always God's heart, is that everyone would turn to him in repentance and faith. And maybe today you're here, and you've heard this message before, but you've never opened the door, and you know it. He's been knocking, he's been knocking, he's been knocking, but you've never opened that door. Friend, today can be the day you do. Today can be the day where you say, Jesus, I'm at the end of myself. I'm going to rest my full weight on your gift of salvation. I invite you to do that today. And perhaps you're here today and you've already done that, but you recognize and you felt convicted that you need to recommit yourself to the Lord Jesus and to fully surrender your life and control of it to him. And again, You can do that right now today. And if God is speaking to your heart, I encourage you to do so. For if you do, just like Rahab, your life and perhaps even the life and the salvation of your family and your friends could change forever. By God's power, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of compassion. That though our sin deserves judgment and wrath, though that day of reckoning is coming, we live in an opportunity, a window of grace, where mercy is available freely to each one who turns to you in repentance and faith. And Lord, today, if there's someone here who hears you knocking on their door to say, open up, let me in, I love you. I desire to show you the same mercy and grace as I showed Rahab all those years ago. Lord, would you give that grace to open the door even now to simply say yes to you. I believe. I'm putting my faith in you and you alone. And Father, if there's anyone here today who felt the conviction that they need to recommit to you in full surrender, full control to you and you alone for their, for their life, for their eternity, and for their purpose, I pray, Lord, that you would grant them the grace to do so and to say, Lord, I'm giving everything to you I'm resting the full weight of my life on you and you alone. And so, Father, I pray that for each one who did that today, that by your Holy Spirit, you would affirm that, encourage them today, that they could continue to walk forward and grow in you. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Bless each one as we go to know that this great gift of salvation is not only for us, but you are interested in us sharing it for the good of those around us, that they too could be saved. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.